0: everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. and This is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Walking through the book of Philippians, and it is how to have a life of joy and happiness and contentment. Everybody wants to be happy, and Paul is saying, listen... If you'll work God's plan, if you'll do God's ways, because this is the world's way. If I get everything I want, when I want, how I want it, that's what will make me happy. And Paul is writing to the Christians in the southern Greek city of Philippi saying, listen, there's a different formula. It's not one that human nature tells you. There's a different formula of how you can have a life of joy. It's having a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life of joy. And that's what this book really is all about. And so as we're kind of in first gear, four-wheel drive, I think this is week six, and we're just really scratching the surface of chapter two, he brings up this idea of salvation for the third time. And part of grinding through stuff like this is it's what we call let the text preach the text. And so I really honestly, the topic today, I, I was kind of tempted. I mean, we've already talked about salvation twice. Paul's talked about it twice. Really need another Sunday on it. And so I was just kind of tempted to skip this, but I really do want to slow down and let the text preach the text. We're gonna, one verse today. Philippians chapter 12, and I probably should have worn a sweater vest because I look more, I'm gonna be more like a history teacher today. We're gonna to talk some history and context. and maybe well, Honestly, it really feels like we're gonna chase a whole bunch of rabbits today. You guys up for a good rabbit chase? All right, here we go. Philippians chapter two, verse 12. It says, dear friends, You always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. As we discovered a couple of weeks ago, that salvation really is the starting point for my spiritual journey with Jesus. It's the starting point of my relationship and my walk with God, Philippians chapter one. If I could back up just a little bit, chapter one, verse six. I'm certain that God who began that good work in me will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. Like, I didn't begin my spiritual journey, he did. I didn't save me, he did. In some of Paul's other writings, he, he gives us some, some other thoughts and ideas about salvation. Again, salvation's the beginning point. He who began that, right? And salvation is not complicated. Paul talks about that, like he never intended for for salvation to be complicated. It's not like a 12-step class to confirmation or there's a nine-week program and then you have to pass a test at the end. In another letter he would write to some Christians that lived in the city of Rome, he simplified salvation. Like how do you get saved. He said, Listen, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, if you publicly declare that, that I give my life and I follow Christ, and he says, if you'll believe, like have the faith in your heart to believe that he was the Son of God and was supernaturally resurrected, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So if I'll just publicly declare Jesus my Lord, believe with the faith in my heart, God raised him from the dead, then I'll be saved. It's not complicated. And it's free. Paul goes on to another letter. He's writing to Christians in the city of Ephesus. He talks about just how free salvation is. You can't earn it. You can't work hard enough. Ephesians 2, 8. God saved me by his grace. When you believe, we're gonna hit that when you believe two or three times today. You can't take credit for this. It was a gift. Gifts are free. If it's not free, it's not a gift. So here's what Paul wants you to know about salvation. Number one, I didn't do it. He began it, God. It's not complicated. There's no test. There's no nine weeks, and then you have to pass the quiz, and it's free. I can't earn it. Salvation is my starting point, and that part is easy. It's following Christ that's a whole different Story, Jesus in His own words, Matthew sixteen, would say, "If anyone wants to follow Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me." Denying myself that, thats that, thats not easy. It's not any fun either. You know what I'm saying? Crosses, crosses aren't easy. So in Philippians chapter two twelve, Paul brings up this idea of salvation for a third time. Dear friends, you've always followed my instructions when I'm with you, and now that I am away. It's even more important, work hard to show the proof, show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. I love the way the New Living translates this verse. It really, I think, catches the essence of what Paul is trying to say to the Christians in Philippi, that salvation is the beginning. And because you're saved, the spirit of the living God is living in you. And out of that salvation, work hard to love God, love people, out of that salvation Man, work and let that inspire you towards love and good deeds. But it's kind of interesting, this this chunk, as I was reading through Philippians and I read out of the New Living Translation. I'm gonna explain all that. I didn't recognize Philippians 2.12 because I have a notebook where I was kind of plotting out just this sermon series and I knew I want, I knew the verse I was after, I knew was in here and I was looking for it and I was looking for it. And I didn't recognize Philippians 2.12 because that's not how I recall it. Let me put it up in the New King James. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This is what I recall. This is, this is what, and maybe some of you that maybe grew up in church or are reading different translations or maybe even possibly memorized this. He says, work out your own salvation with fear, trembling. Now, that's the verse I was looking for. That's the verse I remember. But the New Living Translation doesn't say it that way. I know we're in first gear, four-wheel drive, just kind of grinding through Philippians. But this morning, I want to just hit the clutch and just pause for for just one moment. Because clearly, there's there's a little bit of difference between the two translations I've presented. I've been reading out of the New Living, but then I stuck this up in the New King James. and, And those are... Those can be two separate ideas, so I want to hit the clutch and talk about Bible translations. There's three different approaches to, to how scholars have translated the Bible. Now, Before I get into the translations, let's get to the Bible. There's two parts of Scripture that's what we call the Old Testament, but then there's the New Testament. The Old Testament was predominantly written to the Jews. It's the Old Covenant. That is written in the Jewish language of Hebrew. Now, there's there's a few small passages that are actually written in a different language. We don't talk about it much, but they're written in the, the, the dialect or the language of Aramaic. And that would be the language of the Syrians. Maybe if you remember in history, the land of Aram. The land of Aram was just a little bit north and east of Israel. There's a few passages in the Old Testament that are written in the land of Aram dialect or Aramaic, all right? But most, the vast majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written almost entirely in Greek. All right, so you have the Old Testament, Hebrew, the New Testament, Greek. 380 years after the birth of Christ. So you you can debate, was Jesus born 0 BC or or 6 BC or whatever, but but really the idea of, of our calendar is based on the year zero, like it's 2022. That means 2022 years ago, Jesus was born you can kind of debate when that was, but but that's what they said. Okay, so let's go three hundred and eighty years after Jesus was born, so three eighty AD. Okay, there was a guy by the name of Jerome. We'd probably call him Jeremy today, all right? But he lives in now what's modern-day Croatia. It's just across that little Adriatic Sea from the Boot of Italy. Okay? So he was right across there. And so he started to translate the Old Testament and the New Testament from their different languages, he wanted to put them into Latin. In 380, Latin was equivalent to English today. English is just, I'm not saying more people speak English, it's just probably more well-received around the globe. You can go to almost any country and find someone who speaks English, primarily because the English-speaking language drive the world economy. I don't want to get into politics or whatever, but it's just everywhere I've traveled, whether it be to Kenya, Nicaragua, I can always find someone that speaks English. Latin was very similar. It was kind of the predominant or probably more the wealthy language. And so he was taking the Old Testament from Hebrew, the New Testament from Greek, and in 380, he was translating them into Latin. For the next several hundred years, they would make very slow progress at translating the Bible into other languages. He finished... In 382, and then I want to fast forward in history a thousand years. Okay, so for a thousand years, they didn't really make a lot of progress. But then finally, a thousand years later, a guy, maybe you've heard this name, a guy by the name of John Wycliffe, is credited with producing the first complete translation of the Bible into English in 1382. Okay, Jerome did his in 382, and finally the Bible gets completed into English. In 1382. I told you, it feels like history class, but you're fine. Right? Let's go 222 years later. A gentleman by the name of James Charles Stuart, but you would know him as King James VI or King James I, and that's a whole other history lesson, right? In 1604, he wanted the English language that was now almost 300 years. He wanted it updated into a modern English. And so in 1611, the King James Version of the Bible was born. Okay, so that's how we get to kind of where we are. Now, there's three approaches to translating Scripture. The first approach, and people fight about this. You don't, trust me, just get on the Googles. And man, you can see some feisty fights about that. I just prefer to stay out of all that and focus on seeing people get saved. Amen. All right, so the first form of translation is what we call word for word. So if I go back to the Hebrew and it says the word bird, we translate it to bird. If it says the word thee, we translate it as best we can to thee or very or much or blue. We we translate. So there's word for word. Now, that makes sense, right? Like I want to get as close back to the original language as I can. But the problem is we ran into some language barriers and some language issues. I was, gosh, it was probably 14, 15 years ago when I realized the importance of translation. I was in Nicaragua preaching to a tent full of Nicaraguans, and you know, I don't know that they'd ever heard somebody speak English before. And I realized very quickly that what I was talking about didn't translate very well because my translator was going word for word. I'll give you some examples in scripture. All right, here's some examples of some, some translation issues. In the English language, we have one word for love, right? There's some variations, but, but when it comes to translating from the Bible, in the Greek, there is eight, some say nine Greek words for love. There's only four in scripture, like agape, which is the unconditional love that God has for us. God has agape love for us. That would be the Greek word agape. We translate it love. Then there's eros, which is where we get the word erotic or romantic or, or, or a sexual love. Okay, so in the Greek the word would be eros, in English we just say love, Philiae, which is Philadelphia, it's where they get it's brotherly love. It's it's a friendship. Philadelphia is supposedly the city of brotherly love. All right? All right, then you have storge, which is kind of like a family bond that a parent would have for their children. A, a family tie is that storge is the Greek word. We just say dad loves his child. Okay? But there's other Greek words too, like there's a word for how you would love yourself or a love for how you would love somebody you're hosting or hospitality. The Bible doesn't go into those, but there's four Greek words in scripture for the word love, and we translate it to one word, love. So you see how you can run into some translation issues. Years ago, I think Jerry and I were dating, and I'm just a kind of, I love you, man, kind of guy, all right? I'm just that guy. And so, like, I would end most of my phone conversations with somebody like, hey, buddy, I love you, man. Love you, bro. Hey, love you. And she looked at me one day, she goes, well, I guess you just love everybody, don't you? And I'm like, oh. But I gotta be honest with you, the conversation I have with my father-in-law, love you, buddy, that is completely different than the love that I have for Miss Jerry when we cuddle up watching the movie. I love you, baby, those are two different loves, all right? So word for word is a great way to translate the Bible, but you're gonna run into some language issues. That's not right, it's not wrong. It's just an approach, and it was the first approach, all right? So then to compensate so we could gain a better understanding, theologians and translators said, okay, let's, let's, let's give a little bit of liberty here. And so they developed this second type of translation, which became thought for thought, or really phrase for phrase, if you will. So word for word, if the word is, is love or agape, they translate love, or if it's bird, they would translate for bird or very, for very, but but in the thought for thought, like, we'll use the same words, but we're going to order them. We might add some to make it more descriptive so that the reader can really understand what's going on here. All right. The NIV, very, very popular translation. It is, it is the most popular of the thought for thought because it, it was the first one to kind of push away from the clunky word for word and go phrase to phrase or, or thought for thought. Okay, I, I grew up. Reading the NIV, a lot of you maybe did too. It's not right, it's not wrong. Some people appreciate it, some people disagree with it. I totally understand both sides, I'm just not gonna fight about it, right? Then in recent history, we've had a third type of translation come about, which is what we would call the paraphrase, okay? Where scholars get together and they wrestle through the context, they wrestle through the ideas, the understanding, the verse or the passage, and they say, okay, this is what the scripture's saying. Let's put it in a way that it's easy for anyone to understand. Let's put it in today's English. So a person who might be a new Christian or someone who may not have a huge education background can pick this up, actually enjoy reading the Bible, there's a thought, and still understand what's going on. They were out to capture the essence of the passage. They were out to catch the concept that's being Communicated. This is the idea of this verse, and then write it in a contemporary way where you can understand its meaning. If that makes sense, say yeah. Okay, so there are some of the paraphrases that are very descriptive. One that's uh, it's kind of popular because it really takes the Bible and, and uh, he wrote it almost like a novel. It's called The Message. And if you've ever read The Message, you'll know that there's not always verse numbers like the other translations because he doesn't want you to get caught up looking for Romans chapter eight, verse one. He wants you to catch the essence of the passage. And so the message, is a, it's very poetic. It's, it's easier to read. I say, a lot, I use the New Living Translation. I'm gonna tell you how I got there, all right? Okay, and it falls, you can see on the screen, it falls almost exactly between thought for thought and paraphrase, okay? It's not quite over in the paraphrase, but, but it's a little more liberal in the, in the thought for thought. So let me back up in history while I'm, Teaching history. Okay, in 1971, there was a author who actually took Bible stories and wrote them into children's books, and a guy by the name of Kenneth Taylor, okay, who wrote a personal paraphrase of the Bible. He never intended for it to be a scholastic translation. It was just a, like, I going to enjoy reading the Bible, and I have to think, all right? So it was never intended to be a translation, what then eventually became known as the Living Bible. Anybody remember that? Your mama, you have one. Your mama had one. Maybe your grandma. Had, very sold millions. My mom had one. My grandma had one. My great grandma had one. I mean, it was just it was very common in the 70s, in the 80s. Now, gonna shock you. You're gonna want to sit down for this. It did receive some criticism. Okay, like the critics were like, well. He just dumbed down the biblical text to a grade school level, which I'm sure Kenneth Taylor's like, okay, I think you're trying to insult me, but that's actually what I was trying to do. (laughs) I was actually trying to produce a Bible that was somewhat easier to read, and he did It was very, very, very popular. So let's fast forward about 25 years. 1989, 1990, a group of scholars said, okay, we want to take this project and we want to give it kind of a fresh touch. All right. And so there are over 90 scholars that were involved in the production of the New Living Translation. And so they would get guys from the conservative side of Christianity and get guys from the liberal side. They get side from the denominational and some from the charismatic, and they put them all on these teams and say, okay, you need to take Philippians, and you guys need to go wrestle through what it's trying to say and produce it in a way that we can produce a a new translation of the Bible. You guys need to take Psalms. And, And some of those teams literally had eight and nine people that were working on them, some of them were just three. But over 90 scholars from different backgrounds came together and they worked and worked and worked and worked. Finally, in 1996, they released the first version of the New Living Translation, okay? I worked in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, In 2001, and we had got a couple of boxes of these, and my boss, they're like, here. I'm like, all right, I got enough Bibles, but I'll take this, and I start to read. Like, what is this heresy you give me? There's no verilies or beseechings or nothing, you know? And I fell in love with it. I'm like, hey, I understand what's going on here. And so I started reading the New Living Translation. So they released the first one in 96. Then they revised it again in 2004, which, by the way, my favorite Version is the first one from 96. You can't hardly find them anymore. Okay? There's 2004, 2007, 2013, they revised it. In 2015, they did two revisions. They did a Protestant revision, but then they also did a Catholic version of the Bible. Okay, And then I have these same questions. Like, why, why are they changing it? Why do they need to change it? Why do they need to revive it? God's word is unchanging, amen? Correct, God's word isn't changing but the human language is. The English language is. The words we use is, and no, no offense, no offense, it's just real, we just getting dumber. I mean, we just are, you know what I'm saying? Our vocabulary usage is, is shrinking, all right? And so the English language is changing from verily, verily, I beseech ye therefore brethren, to Jesus is busting, no cap, you know what I'm saying? That's not in the Bible. That would be in the BKV version. Mm-hmm. So the King James, it's a great translation. I love it. There's a power to it. I don't know that it's necessarily more anointed. Some people might argue it. But the reason it has a power is because I have an emotional connection to it because that's what I read and memorized when I was a kid. But sometimes it's hard to understand. Can I just be honest with you? We call them donkeys, not the other word, right? We don't use the term Bowels or groin anymore. We just don't. We call it something different. So our English language is changing, and that's what. They're, let me give you a couple of examples. In John's Gospel, he tells the story of Jesus feeding five thousand people, and he asks the disciples, like, they're like, "Jesus, we with all these people, like, yeah. That's a, matter of fact, you take care of it." And so Philip, one of the disciples, speaks back to Jesus. And we'll put it up in the King James, and I'm going to show you a different translation. Right. So Philip answered him. 200 pennyworth. Some translations say 200 denarii of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. I don't even know what a denarii is. Is that like a case of Dasani water? Like, is it in the multiple? I don't even know what that is, right? So in word for word, you even get weights and measures that are translated word for word. The New Living said, hey, let's, let, I want you to understand what's going on here. They translate it this way. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have money to feed them. Like Jesus, like it's gonna take a lot of money. And if all 12 of us went to work, it would take months to do that. So you see, word for word, it's a good translation. But what these translators on the paraphraser even thought for thought is they were more so, they did it, but they were just wanting to produce a translation that you, Regardless of education, could sit down and understand the context of what's going on. Thought for thought, it's a good idea. Okay? The intention is not to change the content because God's word is unchanging, but God's word wasn't written in English. King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Right? All right. Somebody said that one time. I'm like, bless your heart. Right. intention was never to change the content. The intention was to present content in a modern way so today's reader can understand it in their current context, which, by the way, was the exact same thing that King James VI was doing in 1611. And he was highly criticized for it. They would have killed him if he hadn't been the king, right? So, you can, king, you can do whatever you want. God's word is unchanging, but translators and teachers and theologians are constantly trying to refine and refresh the translation so that whoever the reader is can have a better understanding of what God's relationship is with his people, all right? On occasion, you will see a, uh, a, a I'll use a translation, it's called the BKV, the Brent Kellogg version, all right? It is written mainly for rednecks with sad attempts at humor, all right? So, hang First service laughed at that. That's fine. If it's gonna. I'm gonna take my foot off the clutch. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul, for a third time, is talking about salvation. I was looking for the older translations where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling or fear and trepidation. Okay, But instead, I got, work hard to show the results of your salvation. And I, I was like, I know it's in here somewhere. I, I gotta figure this out, okay? Keep in mind Paul's walk and his progress through salvation. Salvation is the start of our relationship with God. Salvation is not complicated. You confess with your mouth, believe in your heart and be saved. But out of that salvation, when the spirit of the living God came in you, work hard towards love and good deeds. Let that salvation that changed you eternally, let it also change you in this life. And I wanna make sure you hear me clear with Philippians two twelve. It is saying work out of that place of salvation not work for salvation. Because in Ephesians, it said salvation is a free gift from God. You can't earn it, okay? There's a huge difference in working out of a place of being saved instead of working for salvation. Does that make sense? Make sure your neighbor is still awake at this point. Like, just nudge them really good, all right? I know the context of this verse, and, and that's so why I think the New Living grabs it really well, is that same faith that saved you needs to motivate you to work hard for the kingdom, motivate you to get better and grow and become the best Jesus follower you can be. That same faith that saved you also needs to change you. So work out of your salvation. But I gotta tell you, I almost skipped this, but I kept coming back to and coming back to this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because I wanna go back to some of the ways that I heard it taught. I'm gonna go back to, if you read it in those older translations, it says, listen, work out your salvation. Wrestle it out, work out your salvation. Because if you go back even to the beginning of time creation, in the beginning God created, this has been a story of good versus evil. This has been a story of God, Yahweh versus Satan, Lucifer, all right? From the beginning in Genesis, remember when Adam and Eve had had the tree and the fruit From the beginning, Satan has tried to bring confusion and distortion to what God says. Did God really tell you you can't eat that fruit? Did God really tell you? So he just always tries to use a half-truth and deception, and and so he's trying to do a couple of things. He wants us to be frustrated with God. He also wants us to kind of just get stuck in our growth. I'll explain that as we... Work through. So there's three lies that the enemy tells us about salvation. And at one point in my journey, I've listened to all three of them, and maybe you have too. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe from the moment you gave your life to Christ, you knew it was a sealed sign delivered. I'm yours. I mean, maybe you did that. But I know, and most of the people in my life, and even the spiritual giants in my life, they say, you know what? I wrestled with salvation I worked out my salvation for a year. Not worked for, but wrestled through it. The first lie the enemy wants to tell you about your salvation is, surely you have to earn it. Something as big and beautiful and grand as an eternity with our creator in heaven, surely there's strings attached, right? I don't know about you. I hate showing up in a room where we're exchanging gifts and I didn't know. Oh, look, I have nothing, right? I hate those moments. You hate those moments. And some of you are great at receiving gifts. Some of you a little too good, that's fine. But most of us here, we don't like like getting gifts because I don't wanna feel like I owe, oh, you got me a birthday gift, great. Now I gotta get you. Oh, you got me a Christmas present. Oh, I've got yours, I just forgot to bring it. I'll bring it next time I see you, right? We don't like to owe people. And human nature assumes there's always strings attached. And the enemy plays on that. So if human nature really wrestles with, is salvation really free, and the enemy builds on that, it's gonna create a me, surely I have to earn it. I have to work for it. I have to work and work and work to, to keep God happy with me so I don't kicked out of the Jesus club. And that's why Paul would write to the Christians in Ephesus, it is a gift, it's free. If you have to pay for it, it's no longer a gift. It's a gift I can't earn it, okay? Ticket to heaven, that's an expensive ticket. Satan will tell you you'll never be enough. He's right, I'm not enough, but Jesus is. Ha ha, amen, woo, my team won, woo. All right, so lie number one is that surely I have to earn it. Lie number two is surely it's not that simple. I don't, I really don't think God intended for salvation to be complicated. I was with my grandfather before he passed. We would take various road trips. We loved to go to World War II museums. There's a great one in Fredericksburg, Texas. Um, We went to the one in New Orleans. And so we were one day, we were going to the World War II museum in New Orleans and we were coming from Baton Rouge and we were on I-10. If you've ever been on that, it's it's really an incredible, it's an incredible drive. But there's this miles long bridge that goes over Lake Pontchartrain, all right? And it's a big lake, but it looks like it's part of the ocean. And we're driving, and my granddad goes, "Is that brackish water down there?" I said, "I have no idea. I don't even know what that is. Like, what is brackish water?" I don't know. So there are places where rivers run into the ocean. There are places where lakes, like Lake Pontchartrain or whatever, that meet up with the ocean. And if you've ever been in the ocean, don't drink the water. It's salty. It's nasty. It's disgusting. We took our kids for the first time to the beach, and like. I'm a I'm a beach guy, right? And so we took our kids out to the beach and we went and found this beach where there wasn't a lot of people. I'm like, you guys are gonna love the ocean, it's so awesome. They were there 15 minutes. Can we go back to the hotel and swim in the pool? Little brats, right? So this ocean just its salt water is nasty. Lake Pontchartrain has four freshwater rivers that feed it, but it also connects to the Gulf of Mexico, which is the ocean. So you have this freshwater. Mixing with salt water, that's brackish water, where it's part fresh, part salt water. This is absolutely free, has nothing to do with Jesus, right? Lake Texoma is considered brackish water. It is. Apparently, there are some underwater tributaries that go through mineral fields and salt fields, and so Texoma is listed as mildly brackish. If you disagree, that's fine. Send that email to info at wikipedia.com. I'm sure they'll respond right to you. This lie of surely it's not that simple feels a little brackish to me. Feels a little mixture, feels a little gray. And so the enemy loves that when there's some confusion around it because he wants, he wants, to, he wants to mess you up in there. Okay. Feels like there's a little bit of truth. There's a little bit of untruth. Salvation isn't complicated. Amen. But following Jesus is. So what's the difference? And this is an easy place where Satan can take half-truth, human nature, and get us to doubt, am I really saved? Salvation is simple. Following Christ requires sacrifice. So now I'm gonna stop being a history teacher and become a science teacher, right? You need to put a check valve in. A check valve is an engineered device where water when it's flowing through it in the correct direction, there's a little lid, sometimes there's a ball that the water pressure will roll out of the way and so the water flows through there, okay? When the water's moving in the right direction, that lid just opens right up and the water just goes right on through. When the water stops flowing, that lid stops and, and, and so now that the water that's on the other side of it can't, can't go backwards, all right? So for example, our fire hydrant out here, we don't open that thing very often, okay? but it's connected to the same fresh water that feeds some of your houses that you go and drink out of and cook spaghetti with, all right? And so it actually has a check valve on it. Sometimes it's called a backflow preventer because that water that sits in that line, it's gonna get stagnant after a while and they don't want that water getting mixed into the water that's going to your house so you can boil eggs. And so we need to put a check valve or a backflow preventer in our theology all right, salvation is that check valve. On this side, I'm lost. But my life moves in the right direction. I was saved when I believed. Jesus is coming to life, be my savior. And I passed through the check valve. All right, so I did that on Sunday, but Monday morning I get up and cuss the kids and kick the dog or vice versa or whatever. But the problem is the valve, I don't, I, don't, I don't come back over to the lost side just because I had a bad Monday. I don't come back over to the lost side because I, I made some bad choices or I gave in to some temptations. And so salvation becomes a check valve. Does that make sense? Okay, good, all right. Line number three is I didn't do it right. Or maybe I did, it just didn't stick, okay? Someday, 10, 12, 15 years from now, I have a bad dream that there's gonna be a man in a suit wearing Ray-Ban sunglasses and a little thing in his ear. He's gonna look like he works for the FBI and he's gonna show up at my house. Mr. Kellogg, I need your car keys, the house keys, and the birth certificate of your firstborn child. What? Well, Mr. Kellogg, in 2019, you installed some software on your computer and you clicked agree to the terms and conditions. And in that agreement, you agreed to give us your home, your car, and your firstborn child. Apparently, you didn't read that part. Come on, where are my people that just clicked? Skip the terms and conditions. You check the box anyway, amen. Apple owns us. Literally, I shared this story in first service, and somebody sent me a picture that they were reading that, and there was a recipe for how to bake a cake in the terms and conditions. You have no idea what you get. Right, like the FBI dude, he coming looking for you too, right? One of the lies the enemy wants to tell you about your relationship with God is there is something in the fine print that you did not read and you didn't do it right. So, one of my dearest friends, Pastor Sean Weavers, um, I've known Sean since he was two, three years old, a little blonde headed. I wish I might have put a picture of him up when he was that age. So, Sean pastored in Ada for years. He and his wife, we actually helped them plant a church in Colorado. And um, now he's a foreign missionary in Mississippi there in Pedal. It's awesome. So when I was a kid, my mom and dad did children's church at Souls Harbor, the church where we went to. And it was like Souls Harbor Evangelistic Temple Outreach Center around all the earth. It was one of those names. Some of y'all went to that church too, right? You know what I'm saying? And so my parents, every Sunday morning when big church was going on, they did children's church. My dad would do the puppets. My mom would teach the lesson. And every Sunday at the altar call, Sean got saved every week. Right, Like sometimes there would be three and four kids and his little blonde head would always be in the mix. Right, all right. Sometimes there would only be one kid that got saved and it was Sean. But like every Sunday he got saved and one time he was like, man, I just remember your dad leading me to the Lord. I go, which time? Because it was like 3,427 times, right? He wanted to get it right. I'm one of the blessed ones. And some of you are as well. Like I grew up in a home where Jesus was everything. Some of you, that's not your story. Jesus intersected you later in life, and, and that's awesome. We're glad he did. But every Sunday morning, every Sunday night when Disney was coming on ABC, <laughs> every Wednesday night, and if there was anything else going on because my dad was a deacon and my mom did children, we were at church. I even went to school at church. I gotta tell you, I don't really remember fully the details of when I was saved. And I've heard pastors say, well, if you don't fully remember, then you're not saved. I was five-ish, okay? I vaguely kind of remember going to the altar and talking to Pastor Norman Schumann, who was the pastor of Souls Harbor World Outreach Tabernacle Center, right? Okay. And I vaguely remember that, but I tell you what I do remember clear is day was the day I got baptized. Oh, buddy because me and my two best friends, Drew Cornstubble and Keith Mack, the trifecta, we got baptized together. Woo, the world ain't seen nothing like it. But when you get saved at five, the devil wants to tell you, you, you didn't do that right. So there's a little bit of Pastor Sean in me that I did it several times, even if it was just on my own. And there are parents that want their kids to wait till they're older, totally understand that, totally get that but I also think that a child can understand I want Jesus in my life. Matter of fact, Jesus himself said, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child, not gonna get in. Several occasions in scripture, Jesus compelled you and I to have faith like children. So fast forward a few years, I was 13 years old. And in those days, when I was that age, I spent every summer with my grandparents. And uh, at McGee Valley Baptist Church, they had a revival. Preacher came in, he preached on heaven, preached on hell, preached on on being saved. And, And I remember going home that night and just laying there in fear and just wrestling with it. What if? What if I was too young? What if I didn't understand? What if I didn't read the fine print? What if I didn't do it right? And I just remember almost like I remember being baptized, I just did the best I could to lead myself through that sinner's prayer and just say, Jesus, if you didn't save me then, would you save me now? It's interesting that I remember that moment. Now, I believe based on Scripture, because of what Jesus said about childlike faith and because of what Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. I believe I was a young kid. I believe I was five, six years old. I was saved when I believed. But I had to wrestle it out. I had to work it And I worked for it, but I had to wrestle through that. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, being afraid of hell, that's not a bad thing. It should inspire us to take as many people to heaven with us as possible, our friends, our coworkers, our lost family members, right? But being afraid of hell, that's not a bad thing. I want my kids to be afraid of dark alleys. I want them to be afraid of white vans with free candy, free tacos. That fear of what if... Caused me to spend years working out, wrestling not working for, wrestling with God about my salvation. But I don't want you to live stuck there. And see, that's part of what the enemy wants to do is he wants you to live stuck that if you never know if you really nailed it down or not, you'll never get to his next step that God has for you. So the enemy wants to keep you frustrated with God. He wants to keep you stuck. And we're here to unstuck you this morning, Amen. Matter of fact, the whole letter of 1 John was written to people just like you and I. And John says this, I've written this to you who believe in Jesus so that you may know you have eternal life. John wrote this letter so that you and I who are Christians, we can know. You and I can live in a confidence that Jesus saves me when I believe. So how do I know I'm saved? There's three things. Number one, is there a desire to please God anywhere in your life? If you do not care about living for God, if you do not care about the things of God, if you don't care about the church, if you don't care about eternity in heaven, if you don't care about the things of God, something's not right. There's a disconnect. You don't have that check valve in place. Okay? But if in you, even when you mess up, if there is a desire to to love God and and be with God, right? Right? And that's a sign that I'm saved. Number two, is there a conviction to get better? And here's how I describe conviction it's when the Holy Spirit kind of gently puts his thumb on something in your life. Okay? When you sin, when you make mistakes, is there, oh, God, I, I shouldn't, I'm so sorry. God, I'm, I shouldn't have done that. Is there a desire? to to repent, to apologize, to turn away from that and restore the intimacy with God. Not restore salvation, that was done when you believed, but to restore the intimacy with God or or is it like, oh, well, that's me. Okay. If I'm in a relationship with Jesus, there will be a conviction. There will be this calling to get closer, to fall more in love with Jesus. Am I gonna make mistakes? Yep. Yep. But there is a desire to get back right with Jesus. There's a desire to fall deeper in love with Jesus. Like married couples, they have bad days. Sometimes it's like, honey, you need to go on a trip with your friends or I'm going to kill you in your sleep, right? And then I'm gone. but, But there's always that desire. That's why we're called the bride, Christ. There's always that desire to come back to that Person, is there a conviction to get better? And then third, is there a direction in my life that points towards God? Is there a direction towards God in my life? You can't just look at today. If you just look at Monday morning, well, you blew it again, right? You have to look at your timeline from the point God came in your life, back up 30,000 feet and look and say, is that headed in a direction that's drawing me closer towards God? Because here's why. Most of the time that doubt about our own salvation creeps in is when we messed up, is when we've sinned. But Romans chapter eight, verse one says, there is therefore no condemnation who are in Christ. There's conviction, there's God saying, listen, man, that's not your best. I want to help you, I want to empower you, I want to encourage you, I want to give you hope, but condemnation actually pushes me away. God couldn't love me, I'm not worthy, I'm not And if I back up and I look at my life, I'm not where I used to be, praise God, but I'm also not where I'm going to be. But if I'm looking at this trajectory of my life, is it pointing me towards God? Don't just focus on today and don't just focus on this season. Is my life headed in a direction that points towards God? You can have bad days, you can have bad seasons, but when you look at your life, you see God filling you, growing you to live for him. I used to let the lies mess with me. And maybe some of you have bought the lies. I used to, man, maybe I just wasn't good enough. Maybe I have to earn it. Maybe I didn't read the fine print. It, it, truly, it's surely not, it's not this easy. Maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe it didn't stick. Listen, it is absolutely okay. And for some of you, you feel like you've wrestled with this and wrestled with this and wrestled with it. You feel like there's something wrong with you. no. Paul said, you need to work out and your working out is different than my working out and my working out is different than your workout. out. You need to wrestle with and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but I write to you so that you may know you have eternal life in Christ. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I wanna invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, If this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.